0: Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond.
1: Well, good evening. Thank you very much for joining us here at Sydney Ideas. My name is Fenella Curnaba and I'm Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas. And it's so wonderful to have you join us for our event tonight, A Flood of Emotions, Climate Anxiety and Trauma in Australia. Before we continue, I would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which we all meet, uh, where we work and where we share our ideas. So wherever you happen to be here today and joining us online, um, thank you for joining us. I also wanted to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney's built and and as we share our our knowledge and our teaching and our learning uh, as well as our research practices within the university we also pay our respects to the knowledge that is embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Again welcome to you to tonight's Sydney Ideas event. To join the conversation on socials you can use at Sydney Ideas hashtag Sydney Ideas Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to your moderator tonight, Uh, Blanche Verley is a multidisciplinary social scientist and her work focuses on climate change. She's a member of the Sydney Environment Institute and her research looks into how people understand experience and respond to climate change and how we might do things differently and better. So thank you very much again for joining us and thank you Blanche, over to you.
2: Thanks so much Vanella. And thanks everyone for joining us here at the Sydney Ideas event tonight. My name is Blanche Burley, and I'm so thrilled to be here sharing this event with our incredible panel of speakers. I'm calling in from the stolen and unceded country of the Gadigal people of the Eora nation. And I would like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present for their continuing care for country Here on Gadigal Country, we've had a week of relatively sunny weather, which has been a very welcome reprieve from what has seemed like months of endless rain. Where I am, everything is mouldy, the parks are still sodden and stink of mud, and our world-famous beaches have been eroded and are still polluted from the runoff from the toxic city we settlers have built. I say this to emphasise that you don't need to be in a disaster zone, or to be a First Nations person to see the impacts climate change is having on country all around us. These impacts call on us to be more responsive and accountable. The idea for tonight's event started in that spirit, wanting to pay witness to what is happening around us. In particular, our hopes for this evening's event are to pay attention to the human impacts of climate change. Climate change is often framed as an issue of emissions, energy systems and markets. But it's also an intensely personal and emotional issue, and one that affects different people in different ways and in unfair ways. Australia is one of those unique places where we're both big carbon polluters, but also highly vulnerable to climate change. White Australia loves to idealise this sunburnt country of droughts and flooding rains. But this already highly variable and challenging climate has now warmed on average 1.4 degrees since pre-industrial times, higher than the global average of 1.1 degree. Throughout the latter half of 2019 and 2020, Australia caught the world's attention thanks to an absolutely horrific fire season. I want to acknowledge that the impacts of those fires are still unfolding, that many communities have not fully recovered, and that our national response was and still is inadequate. This year, in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, the east coast of Australia has been pounded by relentless rain. The soils are sodden, the rivers and dams full, and when the big storms have come, the waters had nowhere left to go. Tonight, we will hear from four speakers from the northern rivers of New South Wales, where on the 28th of February, the rapidly rising floodwaters peaked at over 14 metres in Lismore. This resilient community that was very familiar with flooding was nevertheless unprepared for the incredible speed and height of those waters. Just a month later, while people were still flat out trying to clean up, another huge flood swept through. A few weeks on and we find ourselves in the midst of an election campaign that seems to have no memory of these events. Yet if there is one thing that the growing research on climate disasters and mental health tells us... It's that denying and ignoring people's lived realities is a surefire way to actively compound trauma. We are here tonight not to talk about climate change as though it's some abstract issue far away, but to talk with people who are living in climate change worlds about their and their communities' experiences. Through helping to organise this panel tonight, I've become aware of the vast networks of people who are working alongside each other on these issues. And we'll also be focusing our conversation on the community relationships that contribute to climate resilience. Now I'm going to invite our fabulous speakers to turn on their cameras and I'll briefly introduce them. Sam Savage is a traditional owner of the Bindal Nation in Townsville. His ancestry is both Aboriginal from the Biriguba Nation and Torres Strait Islander from Malwar Island. Sam's current role is Northern Queensland Emergency Services Regional Coordinator at the Australian Red Cross. Maddie Braddon is a Lismore resident and community leader whose work focuses on climate justice and building community resilience. jean St. Clair lives in Lismore and is a lecturer at Southern Cross University there where she teaches media and journalism. James Bennett Levy has lived in northern New South Wales for 30 years and is a professor of mental health and psychological wellbeing at the University of Sydney's University Centre for Rural Health based in Lismore. And Aidan Ricketts was directly impacted by the recent mega-flood event in North Lismore and also participated in a civilian rescue at the peak of the emergency. Aidan, I'd like to start with you. You're a long-term resident of Lismore, and during the recent floods, you had to evacuate your home, and you also helped rescue a number of people. Can you share your story with us and tell us a bit about what the situation on the ground is like there now?
3: Uh, Yeah, well... I mean, I think, to put it in context, as you said, Lismore's used to flooding. Um, the towns that are predicated on this record uh, of a planning standard called the 1 in 100, which, you know, in raw figures is 12.6. So I think what a lot of people don't understand, it's not just residents, it was the big corporates, the government offices, everything that were relying on that standard. Um, this flood came in at two to two and a half metres above that. Now, you know, I know myself, my house sits at 13.3, 800, you know, 800 above that. Um, you know, and even taking climate change into account, really, in my thinking, it was like, oh, well, we probably are going to ex- exceed the one 100 at some point. You know, it might come half a metre above that, in which case a lot of places would still have been OK. But it came where I am, it came two and a half metres above that, It came to 15 metres here in North Lismore. And that's what the real shock was. You know, places that were traditionally safely above it suddenly not only were inundated, but inundated up to two and a half metres, which is life-threatening. So, you know, that led to it. I mean, it led to a breakdown of the warning systems because it was beyond the warning systems in place. The ones the bomb uses ended up breaking the gauge in the end. And so, I mean, how my day started was, well, long before light, first of all, having my daughter, Kudra, had to help get the boat out from under the house um, where we'd put it to stop it filling with rain to stop it actually getting jammed up under the floor. Uh, and that was still in the darkness. And then still in the darkness, my neighbours started calling out to me for help. And then we just had to wait for first light before you know, I could go out in the boat, collect those neighbours, collect a, an old lady nearby who I'd been asked to help. And the moment we were on the water and this, the light was coming... Basically, there was people on every roof we went past and and people being pulled out of roofs and we actually helped some people who were in their ceiling and were ankle grinding their way out. So it was, um, you know, absolutely extreme event that, you know, we couldn't have predicted would come so soon.
2: Thank you so much, Eden, for sharing your story. I'm aware that, uh, you know, these events are still fairly recent for you. Um, I know that you uh, need to hop off in a minute because you've obviously got a lot on your plate. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with people tonight?
3: Oh, look, I think, I mean, you know, my understanding of it is, you know, in many ways, there's, you know, there's a lot of focus upon the peak event. There's a lot of media, a lot of governmental focus. And even for those of us within it, I mean, everyone has a different experience. But certainly my experience has been that, you know, I've, I've, I cope much better with the, with the peak experience. Uh, the adrenaline and all of that, then the aftermath. The aftermath goes on and on and on, and it's ultimately very disempowering for you know people caught up in it. And in this case, as you have mentioned, we had the second flood, which really did less in the way of property damage and a lot more in the way of psychological damage, because it really it really interrupted uh, perhaps you know neat neat sort of trajectories people were believing in that you know that there's a traumatic event and then there's a recovery. You know, one follows the other, and instead we've found ourselves living with the prospect of just pulsing, pulsing flooding throughout the season. So, uh, and I think that's affected a lot of people. I know myself, we, you know, we'd, we'd moved back into the house, made it very, very sweet. We were empowered in a way about how resilient our house had been and how resilient we were, and it was going all well. And then when the second one came, we had to put everything up again. We still haven't brought it down because it just, you know, we're just living minimally, sort of going, well, we're going to wait until winter or something. Uh, and that's certainly my experience—is—is—is is, is exhaustion. I mean, uh, I, I was just saying to a friend today, you know, like I'm experiencing, you know, incredible exhaustion after all these months. You know, a sense of the rest of the world moving on and <clears throat> this trauma becoming our own private business, just for those who are in it and affected. And also, you mentioned mental health. It's this sort of idea that I don't know. Sometimes we talk about things like depression or anxiety as if they're an aberration that we have to fix, whereas to some extent, in a situation like this, there are a, just a totally appropriate response to what people are going through. You know, people aren't suffering from a condition because they're depressed or disempowered or exhausted or anxious. That's actually a response to, you know, to a very real situation. So, yeah, that's the main thing I've got to say really is that the, the aftermath is the gruelling grind that just goes on and on and on. And I think, you know, finally, just one thing that I, I find a little bit bizarre is the way the sort of the ideology of safety gets imposed in a disaster zone and a lot of government services or corporate services get withdrawn um, because of this sense that it isn't safe to be in there uh, which is incredibly disabling and disempowering for the people who are in there trying to recover and trying to get back in their homes and I, I sort of have this 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 sense that there's a very great disconnect between having a, a pristine standard of safety which we tend to try to apply in Australia and then to apply that to a climate catastrophe. Um, it, it seems odd to me that on the one hand we can be applying the world's finest WH and S standards and on the other hand we can be walking blindfolded into you know the most dangerous possible future you know and and it isn't just Lismore I mean it's Lismore today it's Droughts out west next time, it's coastal erosion, it's fires. And I think, in terms of climate grief, you know, we're all experiencing personal grief, collective grief, but when you drill down into it, you realise that ultimately it's climate grief that our homes are threatened, but really our big home is threatened, and that's our planet.
2: There's so much wisdom there that you've shared with us in such a short amount of time there. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Uh,
2: And obviously, we all wish you the best with the recovery from this event. Uh, Jhonti, I'm going to go to you next. You created the Lismore Flood Stories Audio Walk project. uh, Originally Mm -hmm. to document the 2017 floods that happened in Lismore, but in light of current events, this is now evolving into a portal for all Lismore flood documentation projects so that we can better understand the impact of climate disasters on regional communities.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, right after the floods, I had people saying to me time for more flood stories and it was devastating to think about the 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 magnitude of the impact from this particular flood trying to capture our history of experience of being a flooding event is is it's a really important role to play as a story catcher if you like in a community and there are many people that are now working in that way who will be helping to bring these stories to light and it's a it's a really, story sharing is a really cathartic experience for most people when they've experienced a climate disaster or any disaster. It's a really positive way to process your trauma and your grief, uh, the difficult emotions, the anxiety and the angry uh, anger that comes from it as well. And it's been interesting to witness how story sharing has been happening after this flood this time. And the important way that social media has been able to catch people's stories, there was a a lot of spontaneous story sharing in the first weeks after the first flood on the 28th where people were sharing their very traumatic stories about being rescued and now there's stories sort of emerging about this long haul of recovery the sort of ups and downs that that um, Aidan was talking about so I think it's really important that we are able to hear these stories and carry them for the community it's it's so important to be seen and heard by your community and the opportunities to acknowledge that we share these experiences is really important. And when I did the project for the 2017 flood, I collected stories from people who uh, had been impacted by the flood and people who helped in the cleanup. Um, in fact, Maddie on the panel here was one of the storytellers and I'm sure she might have something to say about the value of that experience um, when she speaks. We've actually got those excerpts that we, we could I've put together a little package of excerpts from the 2017 flood to give perhaps an example about what that story sharing experience was. A lot of people who participated in that said that they hadn't properly processed the grief yet. One of our storytellers said that she hadn't actually cried until she'd listened back to her own story. And that was three years later uh, that she told and then reheard that story. So perhaps we can listen to the excerpts and then I'll just have one more thing that I'd like to share.
4: Myself and, and my crew, uh, three other firefighters, we all got in the truck and we drove down the Bruxner Highway at 20 to 4, quarter to 4 in the morning.
0: That night, when I got really scared, was, was in the middle of the night, so it was really dark, and I could hear the water rushing and I could hear how high it was. That was my fear, was that the water would actually push the house off its metal poles.
4: There was a lot of trepidation because we realised that it you know, it was potentially a dangerous situation we were going down to.
0: Because I think now that that would have killed us. I don't think there's a way out of that. I tried to do things like roll up towels and rugs and blankets and put them around the doors. But the first sound that I heard was this bubbling and... The water came up through all the drains in the bathroom. Then it started to flood in around the skirting boards, all around the walls around the house.
4: So the crew went and did a final sweep through the station. We all gathered again in the watch room and from there I pressed the button for the siren for three minutes.
0: The coffee tables, chairs and the beds were the first things to start floating.
4: You watch all those movies over the years of... London in the Blitz or whatever like that and you hear that siren going, that's exactly the siren we've got on the fire station.
0: So I won't stay again in a flood that big. And there was Ian Grimwood, who was the fire commander for his um, shift, who rang that siren. And then there was Megan Bowes, who lived in North Lismore in a very high set house. And also Emily Rouse, who lived right in the middle of the Lismore Basin and um, watched the river come closer and closer and finally flood her house, which she was in with her three-year-old son. So this was part of an installation of audio walks that was based from the Lismore Quad. And last year, people would go out wearing raincoats and gumboots and listening to these stories following a route that the audio stories directed them along. And one thing I just wanted to say about that installation was that last year, people would come back from doing a walk and they would tell me either their flood story that they wanted to share, or they'd say that a random person had come up to them in the street and said, what are you doing? And when they said they were doing a flood walk, they wanted to tell them about their stories and they wanted to talk about flood preparedness and they wanted to talk about community resilience. And so I think what that brings up is that it's really important that we keep these conversations going and that we support the community to continue to share the stories about these experiences this is important knowledge and we need to keep it safe
2: thank you so much shanti that um it's heart-wrenching to hear those stories from 2017 Mm. and to think about the impact that your work has had um on the community and how that's supporting people Uh, james i'm gonna ask you a question next Uh, so james you led a study into the mental health impacts of the 2017 floods in northern new south wales Uh, so Can you tell us about the findings of that research and how it can inform our understandings of what's happening now in 2022? Uh, So, for example, what's similar and what's different to the 2017 situation?
5: Sure, sure, thank you. And just picking up on what Aidan was saying about the aftermath, all the, the television cameras are very much sort of on the flood when it happens at the time, but actually floods are all about the aftermath. And it's all about the years after. And so, yes, we we did a study, um, survey study of the 2017 floods at six months post-flood and again at two years post-flood. And um, I think the findings are incredibly relevant, obviously, and probably the first place in the world that's actually done a study of a flood-affected community that's then been flooded again, (laughs) it's not a great thing to have done but you know it's it's what's happened so in a nutshell people who were displaced from home for more than 6 months had a particularly were particularly impacted in terms of mental health and obviously that's incredibly relevant for now where we've got something like and we still don't have the figures but it might be something like 20,000 people that have actually been made homeless And some of those will inevitably be long-term and probably some thousands. Um, The experience of the flood at the time, if you felt you were going to be badly injured or feared for your life or were terrified, feeling helpless or hopeless, you had a very high chance of having mental health impacts and particularly PTSD down the track. What we've had in this flood is is really horrifying experiences uh at a hugely greater scale than happened in 2017. People were completely overwhelmed as Aidan was saying of people on roofs and in in roof spaces and crying out for help and you know it was awful awful scenario um What we also found in two thousand seventeen was, you know, the more you were impacted, um, again, the the greater your your mental health issues down the track. So, so for instance, if non livable areas of your home were affected, um, that wasn't so bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't so bad. But once it got to livable areas, once it got to your business or or workplace, then again, you're at much higher risk for mental health um, problems. On the upside, what's a protective factor is is social connection. Um, so social capital, incredibly important. And another thing I think's is um, obviously very relevant is that what happens in floodplains, of course, is that cheaper housing and so marginalised communities are disproportionately affected. And again, we found that, um, that something like 80% of the people who are flood-affected in 2017 were actually in the in the lowest 20% in terms of socioeconomic indicators. Um, And so particularly, you know, Aboriginal community affected, particularly people on low incomes, people on disability support, for instance. Um, So, yeah, so those were some of the effects. And one, one other thing I would say is we also found that people who were indirectly disrupted also had a higher incidence of of mental health problems and that means for instance being cut off from social services and and now what's happened in this flood is, is, is the indirect impact has been universal uh, right across the northern rivers um, so you know many people didn't have internet for days people didn't even have a triple zero for heaven's sake um, people were cut off for days i mean for days for weeks in some cases um So we're not just talking Lismore here, we're talking um, rural communities that lost their roads completely, that landslips um, that left some houses actually sliding down landslips, others with huge great caverns underneath them. Um, So we have a very, very different scenario this time and um, right across community.
2: Yeah, thank you so much, James. That research is so important and I think also gives us insight into achievable things that could be done in the aftermath um, and also, you know, to prevent these kinds of things being as bad as they can get. It also helps highlight, you know, this idea of climate justice, that some people are affected worse than others and that tends to fall along the lines of existing forms of uh, social inequalities um sam i'm going to uh throw to you next so in your current role you assist the coordination of community resilience response and recovery programs with a focus on psychosocial support working specifically with indigenous communities uh can you tell us a bit about that work
6: yeah look thanks blanche and and i just want to acknowledge all of the um speakers that have just spoken before myself and um It does resonate i was involved with the 2019 floods up in townsville where i reside and and a lot of the um, impacts in the response phase um is very similar even though every event's different it's very similar to the um the impacts of psychosocial physical mental emotional unfortunate impacts that it has on a person or on a community and i think when we talk about communities um there's communities within communities, and, and that's where we need to recognize when we're trying to recover from an event, you know, one shoe doesn't fit everyone, and we need to really take on board that um, we need to listen to what, you know, various um, individual groups, um, marginalized group, as James mentioned, and we talked about the vulnerable, that's the, the word that government use or, or disaster management um, space uses vulnerable groups. And I say, it's not the groups that are vulnerable, it's the system that's vulnerable. And it makes a lot of our marginalized groups, um, unfortunately more marginalized in, in regards to gaining support. But um, look back to back to my role in, in regards to supporting indigenous communities. It's not so much indigenous communities, it's um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples within a community. So it could be metropolitan areas, could be regional areas, rural, and also remote areas as well. And, I think for us it was about trying to create a bit of recognition, um, get inclusion, but also empowering our, our community as in when I say community, our first Nations people to come to the table, bring their voice in the sense of what they need around recovery, but in the sense of impacts of of an event, a lot of the times we do focus on infrastructure, housing, which is which is more uh, you know definitely important. Um, but for a lot of our people um, in the intermediate sort of phases of recovery, um, we tend to start to look back on those cultural obligations that we have. So a lot of cultural heritage that may be lost through a bushfire or through a flood or even through drought or, or a man-made sort of an event. Um, so we really have to consider those sorts of stuff um, that are impacting our, our healing journey for traditional owner groups or, or um, elders that are living within a community that, that have a really connection to country. And and then I heard about the relocation of um, community members having to move from one maybe a suburb or a township to another for short to long term periods. A lot of our people um, that have been moved since the time of you know colonisation and and so forth. Um, the removal of people off country has a very big impact again on losing a loss of knowledge, cultural knowledge, and a loss of that sort of um, connection to country as well. So we're trying to make sure that governments and, and the disaster management space are considering when we have to relocate. And Lismore is a great example. I do know that there was a uh, an indigenous community that that was pretty much flooded out and they had to basically relocate all of that community. And And that's the stuff that, um, you know, I'm hoping that that community, as in Lismore community will, will consider about how do we rebuild to support that community to get back to where they need to be. It'll be a hard road. It's not gonna be easy and it could be a very long journey that's the stuff that we need to um, really have conversations around Um, and I think for us in the recovery uh, space supporting our our people our First Nations people it was um, you know you'll hear of uh, the the fire and rescue teams going in and doing a bit of a rapid damage assessments and and all that sort of stuff we asked about having cultural impact assessments included in that recovery assessments as well and and as I said we're one marginalised groups, so you know there's a whole range of considerations for other groups such as the disability sector, the uh, senior sector, the low economic sector as well, so I'm just talking on behalf of the First Nations group here, but there's a whole range of different groups that are are definitely impacted and need that voice as well. Um, And then of course equity, you know everyone's at the different sort of levels of, of our resilience um, whether it be through that low socioeconomic or or you're just situated on an unfortunate flood zone area um, compared to a high economic where you're pretty much safer than a, than a lot of the other communities so they're the sorts of stuff that we tend to um, bring to the table and and getting people to understand our communities a bit more better than just saying okay we need to help out the Aboriginal groups over here because um, they're not coping and we need what can we do from if we start to build relationships as as we do within communities we'll start to know a bit more better around community needs and how community can lead their own journey around um, recovery and healing um, but also that empowering oneself to um, step up as we heard from Aiden it's, it's not about government doing the job for us people need to do it so they can feel like they're doing it for themselves as well within our space as well Blanche I just want to quickly mention before I stop we've, we formed a, a First Nations recovery group nationally and that was actually Red Cross through the uh, bushfire um, uh, appeal. And we've now got a few uh, identified recovery officers in each each area across the country to support First Nations people and communities, but also a community in general um, to try to recover. And that's a lot focused around psychosocial support. So physically getting prepared and and building that resilience, but more so about the mindfulness and the, the psychosocial part around how do we build better um, in our minds to prepare better? And because um, I think the mind's the most powerful part of ourselves. And if we can't, you know, function properly with, with a bit more sanity around getting prepared for an event, we'll be in that same boat of very being, being risk sort of adverse to a lot of dangers and impacts from, from whatever event hits us in the next um, near future. So I'll leave it at that. and And, yeah, we can go on and maybe ask questions later on
2: such important work that you're doing. So thank you so much. And I I really appreciate your point that vulnerability is, you know, not something inherent in people, but something made through social structures. And, you know, that's something that we can do to help Australia address climate justice better, as well as just working on existing social issues. Um, Maddie, we're going to bring you into the conversation now. So, Maddie, you've co-founded Lismore Helping Hands, which came out of the 2017 floods and is now known as Resilient Lismore. And as part of that, you've been at the forefront of the community-led emergency and recovery efforts in the Northern Rivers for over five years now. So can you tell us a bit about your experiences and the role that communities can and do play in disaster recovery and resilience?
7: Hi, Blanche. Thank you. And um, thanks for what you just shared, Sam. That's really important. And also, um, I just want to acknowledge James and Jonti, who are also part of our community and the work that you've been doing as well. Um, I want to start by acknowledging that I'm on Widgeable wyable land in Lismore. I'm 700 metres out of the flood zone. Um, and I feel despite not having been flooded myself, I feel very directly affected by this event. It feels deeply personal, this climate catastrophe that has occurred in our region. And so what drives me is a love of place, a connection to my diverse community um, and a desire for climate action. Um, And so, the things that i'm going to share with you come from a deep love of place and a deep respect for our amazing community and its history of social and environmental justice and also recognizing that we choose to live in Lismore and the Northern Rivers for the same reasons that make us exceptionally vulnerable to climate related disasters like floods and fires and drought we live alongside a river we know that this is flood country Aboriginal people who lived here know that this is flood country Um, and so I think that despite the devastation that has occurred here it's a really amazing opportunity for us to listen to the land to listen to First Nations people um, and to restore that connection to country and that connection to place that we love so dearly even though it is threatening to our lives and our well-being. So as Blanche said I I was part of helping establish um, Lismore Helping Hands, which is now Resilient Lismore, five years ago. When when that happened, I was 21 years old, straight out of uni. I had absolutely no idea about the disaster um, sector. I had no idea what goes on in those circumstances. I knew climate change was real and a problem that we needed to address. And I was just someone who knew how to use social media who loved Lismore and who was watching from a town. I was living just out of town and I thought about what can I do? I'm watching the devastation unfold on online. And that's an experience that many people are having and have had from, from in Lismore and beyond is feeling really moved by the devastation and wanting to help. So I just wanted to do something and I helped create um, a Facebook group which then led to an on-ground grassroots mobilization where we supported thousands of people for about a month um, in our community to get back on their feet after that flood. What I can say about this flood, despite the amazing efforts that have transpired on the ground and are still happening by um, both Resilient Lismore and the Koori Mail, National Indigenous Newspaper that's based out of Lismore, They're an incredible First Nations led recovery effort, whose core business is actually, you know, independent indigenous media, but they happen to be positioned right next to the levee, right next to the river, and have stepped up in an amazing way to support our community in this time. Um, As well as those things happening and those being quite empowering opportunities for people to receive support and to help one another, the reality is that, in, that our normal community um, being able to help it itself was massively impacted by this disaster at a scale that was unprecedented. Um, and many, many more of our community leaders, I would call them people who would step up to volunteer at a time like this were directly affected themselves. We know the flood footprint was hugely extended beyond what it was previously. So we are seeing um, the climate crisis unfolding in that unpredictable, more frequent, more severe way right here in Lismore, just as across the region in the North Coast. Um, So for me personally, when it came to remobilizing, um, my partner lost her house. I had several friends. There were eight people living at my house for a week and a half who were evacuees. And the skills that I would normally have, like the role of me uh, participating in community recovery, um, leveraging my experience in 2017, it was drastically reduced because we were dealing with survival. We were dealing with a much greater impact. And despite that, there's quite a few people from Resilient Lismore who were able to step up and use their amazing diverse skills and do just whatever they could to set up. So a whole bunch of us went to the uni um, in Lismore and we were hosted there graciously and and we were able to kind of set up our um, operations there and create a website. Um, And that website is www.floodhelpnr.com if people would like to go check out the ways that they can help. And so we just—it snowballed from there—and Resilient Lismore ended up operating on ground, alongside and in solidarity with the Koori Mail First Nations-led recovery effort. So really amazingly, what we've seen now is more and more community members have stepped up to support each other. Um, there's the Trees Not Bombs cafe that's been delivering food for people for free. And it's really quite a diverse community-led response because it needs to be to reflect the amazing community that's full of diversity. And so it's really fantastic. But we are going to need help from the whole of Australia in the weeks and months and years to come because people are very tired. And as Aidan said, we have had compound flooding events and people are absolutely exhausted.
2: Um, it's a really great segue into my next question, which is for everybody. And I'm just going to preface it by a little bit of context. So I'm a researcher and I look at the emotional impacts of climate change. So largely our research literature takes two distinct approaches to that. And on the one hand, we have research that explores the grief loss and trauma that can occur after specific climate disasters that have happened in local communities like these floods. On the other hand, we have research exploring how people, especially young people, are anxious and worried about the anticipated future impacts of climate change. However, our research, uh, I think, is a bit behind the times and so far rarely considers both of these experiences, that emerging out of past lived experience and that oriented to the future at the same time. my question for all of you, if you're interested in answering this one, is: Are you seeing future-oriented climate anxiety in oh, and- yeah. these disasters? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I, mean, I, I can jump in and just sort of say that it's actually a really strong point of discussion in the community at the moment, and you see it where uh, people are. Uh, fearful of moving back home now or they want to move their homes to higher ground or they want to move the town to higher ground or they they want to leave the northern rivers altogether. and you have people who are talking about quitting communities and neighborhoods that they've been a part of for decades generations and generations and so it's not just in the young anymore and I think there's a real fear I'd like to hear what everyone else has to say as well that the Feb 28 flood is actually part of the the new normal and there's a lot of anger directed at uh, the government um, over the climate change inaction that's coming out as well so it's 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 not just an anxiety on a personal level it's translating and I think somebody asked a question in the chat a little while ago for how do we change these emotions in the political action I think that's actually happening I think that's happening
7: absolutely just building on what Jonti said um you know as as a 27 year old again it is an all ages thing but i'm absolutely terrified about what it is going to be living in this time in the years decades to come i have no idea what kind of quality of life you know i stand in a relatively privileged position let alone those with less access to support and let alone the younger generations who you know have not known a world there are people who are 5 years old and younger who have not known a world without floods, without pandemic, without droughts. And, and it's very scary. So I think we are gonna have some incredible survivalists that come out of this, but it is very stressful and we do need action. And that's how we um, we need strong and lasting action that is responsive and accountable, just like you said at the start, Blanche, because that's gonna be the main thing that mediates our distress moving forward. Um, James,
2: did you want to jump in on
5: that one? Yeah, I was just going to say uh, um, we've got school, major schools um, in Lismore that have been completely wiped out. And so so Richmond River School, for instance, is now sharing with Lismore, Lismore High School. Um, I was talking to a friend who's a teacher there. He was saying that up to 10 students a week are leaving at the moment, like leaving the area, that students are like, getting really scared of just, like, even having showers, uh, rain on roofs, of course. So the impacts are very, very direct at the moment. And obviously, you know, their, their schoolwork's being really impacted. And he, w- he was talking about a family of where eight are living in a caravan at the moment. This is the kind of conditions that some people are facing right now. It's really hard. <laughs>
2: Yeah, thank you, James. And um, Sam, I'd love to know if you've got a perspective on that um, around you know, how future-oriented worry might be affecting Indigenous people's experiences of these kinds of disasters. But there's also another question on Slido that I will ask you and you can respond to either or both. And so this question is specifically for you, and it's, can you let us know if there are key things non-Aboriginal people can do to support our local Aboriginal communities? And I presume that's specifically, you know, in the context of what we're talking about.
6: Yeah, thanks, Blanche, for that, that question. I think for for the first part, it's, it's it's exactly what most of our speakers have said. The whole of our nation, or the whole world's actually um, it's becoming a norm for anxiety to, to set in when we've got some type of not a big event like the rain. I was down in Brisbane, I think only about three weeks ago to support the the southeast Queensland floods around uh, the the response and recovery. And then we had that second major event that unfortunately went down south again. And the amount of people that were really, really, um, you know, ringing through to, to um, emergency calls that we were getting all the data in, it was just phenomenal. So um, at the moment, up, up where I am, we've got a big weather event just north of us. And, and you know, I had a call from our head officer to say, do we need to start to prep up and send out EOIs to our volunteers to get prepped up for a, a major event that may occur up in the Far North Queensland area? So, you know, once once something happens, everyone starts to either plan ahead, um, but the anxiety is definitely there. I, th- I think the second part of that question that you just asked me, Blanche, um, for us around having our, our non-Indigenous brothers and sisters um, supporting our communities. Um, I think it's about making sure that we're, we're becoming more aware around communities that you may be working in or living in, protocols around working with our mob, uh, but not just that, just building a relationship, go in and we don't have to just go in um, around a preparedness time around a disaster, an event, start to, to engage with your community um, groups and know about the different events that happen. Once we start to learn and understand about, um, you know, what, what community is about and what's happening in your local area, I'm sure that, you know, you, the, that community once, when, when the time is needed for um, support, there'll be a better way of just going in, supporting, supporting that group, understanding their, their needs and knowing how to actually um, work with that, that community group as in our First Nations people.
2: Thanks so much, Sam. That's, yeah, just brilliant insight. Maddie, you've got something to chip in?
7: Yeah, I just wanted to build off the back of what Sam shared. In Lismore specifically, there's a very clear invitation by groups like Koori Mail to walk with and alongside them. Um, And so when those calls are made, it's really important for us to listen to them Um, at this time. I think that we've gotten into this problem because we, got lost and because we've built this country on colonization and one of the ways to heal country and to help address climate change is to really walk with and alongside First Nations mob just like is being said and I just wanted to do another shout out to because this is about emotions and anxiety and well-being around climate and the floods there's an amazing group uh, called the We Are Lee mob who have created a collaborative northern rivers community healing hub that started in the first week of the first flood and again it has been a collaborative effort with everyone there's been yarning circles and another really clear invitation for everyone regardless of whether you whether you're indigenous or not to come and join and listen and yarn and and benefit from first nations ways of healing and doing things so they're there and it's up to us to listen.
2: Yeah. Thanks everyone for the really incredible conversation so far. We are heading up towards seven o'clock. So I'm going to give you uh, one last question for the evening. And it's a synthesis of a couple of different questions that have come in. Uh, So we've heard a lot about what individuals and communities are doing and they're doing amazing things. Nevertheless, people are tired and it's a lot to ask. So we're in an election campaign and we've seen pretty little discussion around climate change or recent disasters in that. What would you like to see from our government in terms of how best to support communities to prepare for, recover from and live with climate change? Uh, let's let's go to Sam first and then we'll go to Ajanti, if that's OK. Yeah,
6: look, I, I, I won't comment on what we think government should change uh, from a Red Cross perspective. But I think for us, it's around making sure that we recognise what community needs are and and allowing community to lead their own journey in recovery. Um, a lot of the times we are seeing government try to lead that that um, process and we're missing out on a whole heap of um really, really um big information around the actual real needs of community and and, and what they're asking for. So if we can actually step back and open our minungs or ears and take on board those needs and turn them into action, I think it would go a long way.
0: Yeah, I I want to add to, I think, what Sam's saying and point that I think more success will come around climate change and recovery actions, for example, with the Flood Recovery Corporation for Northern New South Wales that's been announced for the seven local government areas. If we get away from the idea that they would consult With the community about what is needed though what we actually need is for the community to be collaborated with and we need first nations people voices who know the floodplain know the river know what it's like to be here that they are included in those conversations more than just on the side they need to be front and central as part of this i think so yeah i think it's got to be around collaboration and people also need choice they need to not be forced into just one single pathway
2: Maddie, do you want to jump in there, and then we'll pass to James to wrap up for the evening.
7: Yeah, look, I'm going to be quite bold um, because the the time of um, not talking about this is well and truly over. Um, we need bipartisan support, so all levels of government, regardless of what political leaning they have, to withdraw their support for fossil fuel industries. We we can no longer burn fossil fuel, so that's coal and gas. We need to Pivot and start to fund renewable energy and community-led alternatives that have us thriving and surviving into the future. We know that fossil fuels are driving these climate disasters that have devastated and wrecked our community, disrupted our sense of place and caused this collective grief. So we need the government across all levels to take serious and lasting action on climate change. Um, and absolutely centering the voices of First Nations people and the directly affected communities like Lismore on the North Coast. And James?
5: Yeah, all of the above, certainly. And um, I would say government to listen to young people, but not just to listen to young people, to actively consult and hear from young people in, in very deliberative ways. We've got all the processes to do that now. You know, young people are the people who are going to have to live for the next, you know, 60 to 80 years. Um, so we need to empower them and for government to listen to them.
2: Yeah, thank you, James. And I echo what everyone has said. It's obviously a really tough conversation and really challenging times for a lot of you. So uh, I did want to wrap up just with one comment, which is from Peter Axtons, who said, thanks to Aidan and daughter, Peter's mum and his brother were among his personal rescues. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. And again, to emphasise just the incredible efforts that community members have been going to, to look after themselves and each other. So It's been a great privilege to chair today's important conversation. Thank you all for tuning in and take care.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.